0: Marie, host of the Building Abundant Success Series. Our spotlight is on a great book called The Southernization of America, A Story of Democracy and Balance by Fry Gilliard and Cynthia Tucker. Mr. Gilliard is an award-winning journalist and... Cynthia Tucker is a Pulitzer Prize award-winning columnist, and they come together in this book to talk about some of the Southern policies over the past 160 years from Reconstruction through the president, through various administrations and laws that have shaped our human and civil rights. Cynthia Tucker and Fry Gilliard and I are coming at you right now. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing just fine. Looking and forward to I your conversation. Thank you. Cynthia on, too. Yeah, amen. Um, this is a very timely book. I was very interested in this book because of the southernization of America. And I didn't come up with that uh, exact title. But as a history buff and major, I uh, was looking at how the civil rights movement and women's rights movement, human rights movement tends to move forward. And then every five years, something happens. What was your um, inspiration in doing this book? Cynthia, you want to start with that question?
1: Sure. Um, the idea actually came from our editor at New South Books. Back in 1974, the brilliant Southern journalist John Edgerton wrote a book called The uh, Dixification of
2: The Americanization, sorry, the Americanization
1: of Dixie. The Americanization of Dixie, right. The Americanization of Dixie, the uh, Southernization of America and it was a series of uh, essays talking about how the South was becoming less isolated from the rest of the nation with the growth of interstate highways and television. The South wasn't an isolated reason, uh, region anymore, but Edgerton postulated that uh, the South and the rest of the nation were not so much exchanging strengths as exchanging sins he talked about the fact that the South had adopted for example much of the materialism uh, and consumerism of the rest of the country and he worried that um, the southern uh, tendency toward racism was seeping out into much of the rest of the nation and uh, about a year ago, Randall Williams, our editor at New South Books, suggested to Fry that maybe 50 years later, it was time for a follow-up uh, to look at the South and the rest of the nation and to follow up on John Edgerton's thoughts about it. Um, and Fry invited me into the project, I'm delighted to say. Awesome.
2: And one of... One of the things that we were trying to do with it is 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 kind of issue a warning uh, that some of the worst of the South is continuing to seep uh, into the rest of the country. Um, some of the racism, some of the undemocratic tendencies that go with that. And yet we also wanted to offer some glimmers of hope that uh, looking at it from the point of view of, of our region, that sort of the inclusiveness of – the civil rights South, the South of John Lewis and Martin Luther King, um, uh, the South in in of civil rights that uh, Jimmy Carter drew upon for his life's work about uh, human rights and uh, trying to improve things, you know, as, as the uh, ex-president of the United States for people all over the world, that kind of thing is still alive too. So we wanted to point to that as well and sort of uh, issue equal parts hope and warning.
0: King, Dr. Martin Luther King, and many others from Garvey, the Renaissance movement. You could even go back to the Reconstruction era with um, our first black representatives in Congress after the um, Reconstruction amendments were. F- Fighting for equality. And many people talk about King's 1963 Birmingham jail letter and, of course, the March on Washington. But he had a different tone later on where he was talking about not only equality, equality in economics, equality in education, etc. When we go back, say, about 160 years uh, after the Reconstruction Amendments, who, um, who beside King um, do you believe, uh, what historian and or person sticks out in your mind in that fight for equality? Well, I think we
2: could look at, as you mentioned, a number of the African American members of Congress during Reconstruction. Somebody like uh, Robert Smalls of uh, South Carolina who was elected to Congress uh, after uh, having become a champion of uh, public education as a state legislator in uh, in South Carolina uh, and education available to everybody, black and white, or uh, Benjamin Turner, the first black congressman from Alabama who uh, who favored uh, equal rights for African Americans, uh, former slaves, uh, even as he opposed punishment for former Confederates and talked about binding up the wounds of war, or Senator Hiram Revels of Mississippi, who took over Jefferson davis's seat before becoming a renowned educator i mean these were people who held aloft a vision of both equality and reconciliation um you know back during the time of reconstruction and the country didn't listen um you know it happened again in the civil rights era certainly with dr king and as you mentioned he became more and more expansive uh in what he advocated And the way he saw a just and equal society, so it was more than ending segregation. It was more than than achieving voting rights. Uh, He also talked about economic inequality. I mean, economic uh, uh, equality and ending the disparity in incomes, or at least reducing it in the country. So he talked about economic justice. Um, and he talked about, uh, ending the racism that he thought infused American foreign policy, uh, and made us, uh, ob- oblivious to, um, uh, uh, to countries, uh, that were, you know, mostly people of color in terms of, uh, understanding what was really going on in places like Vietnam. So, you know, all of those examples are part of our story in, uh, we believe we ignore them at our peril
1: Ms Tucker um, Yes, um, we in, in particular mentioned Robert Smalls in the book because south carolina um, South Carolina was the first state to secede from the Union um, after the war was over. Robert Smalls was among um, the the very visionary black men elected to Congress and the Senate who were trying to make the United States a better place for everybody, South Carolina also played a pivotal role in the election of Joe Biden uh, because James Clyburn, who had as a college student by the way, participated in protest movements in uh, in South Carolina later became an educator and then a member of Congress. Um, He endorsed Joe Biden, and that uh, revived Joe Biden's campaign. Uh, As everybody knows, Joe Biden went on to win the presidency with a path that started in South Carolina and went through Georgia. And so the southern states, in addition to playing A role that we hope the rest of the country does not follow in terms of voter suppression and and that sort of thing. The South has also played um, a role in opening up democracy. I would argue that the United States was not really a democracy until the Voting Rights Act of 1965. You mentioned uh, the women's movement and other movements earlier. After black people won the right to vote broadly, then other minority groups began to realize that they were full citizens, too. Native Americans, Latinos began to vote. So the civil rights movement, in our view, uh, made the U.S. a real democracy, and much of that work took place in the South. The reason why I asked that question is
0: um, the Reconstruction amendments and the representative in Congress who happened to be black, you don't get that in public schools. You're not learning these types of things. You're learning about slavery. And many of the people who are doing the oppressing, they have their own reality of the way this country was founded. Um, black people's roles in society. In fact, many of the Reconstruction representatives owned land. They were business people. And you can go not only through the end of the 1800s and through the Harlem Renaissance to the 1960s. Um, Pullman, Porters, and others allowed many, not all, but many black Americans to level up and join these movements of civil rights, uh, whether it be outwardly um, in their, their country stores registering people to vote, or just, you know, being warriors like a Fannie Lou Hamer. I ask that question because we are actually going through a lot of these things now over the last 160 years, we're going through this stuff now. We're seeing people in the street. We're seeing people registering others to vote. We're seeing voter oppression. We're seeing, you know, the revisitation of the Tulsa massacre. But a lot of this stuff is being suppressed now that you can't even teach it.
1: Um, Absolutely. Um, I have heard, um, in fact, recently, I have heard more than one person that I know Say that he or she doesn't know very much about Reconstruction. It was a critical period in U.S. history and a period people ought to know more about in part because I think that if we learn the lesson that we should not have um, oppressed, uh, violently oppressed, the newly freed black people who were trying to become full Americans If we get that lesson, maybe we won't repeat it. Uh, But it is absolutely true that the conservative movement against so-called critical race theory, and most of the people talking about it don't even understand that critical race theory is not being taught in elementary and high schools. But what they're really trying to do when they criticize critical race theory is stamp out any education that is about the real history of America. And that's unfortunate. It leaves us ill-equipped to confront the future, I think, if we don't understand our past. And I think Fry has some experiences that he talks about um, in terms of going into classrooms and talking to students about that forgotten and overlooked history.
2: Yeah, um, I've I've had the the good fortune to uh, go into uh, uh, both elementary school classes and um, and high school classes as well as the uh, college classes that Cynthia and I teach sometimes together. Um, and when you when you talk to uh, young students, it doesn't matter what color or racial background they are about this kind of history. It's not that all of a sudden you make people feel ashamed to be white or anything else, they what what you make them aware of is that things that were just not fair and not right happened in our past. And almost without exception, their response is, well, that that's not right. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't want to be a part of that. And it doesn't matter what color they are. And so all this false flag that's being flown that you're going to make you know, especially little white kids feel bad if you teach the truth. It's just—it's just not my experience. And and I, and I've done a lot of, of of talking to to kids about this. It seems important to me to do it. And I've even written a little bit in terms of books for for young readers. It's not mostly what I do, but I've done some of it to kind of reach out to to young people so that. Uh, they do learn this history, and what I find is it makes them hopeful. It makes them feel liberated because they see the mistakes and they don't want to do it again.
0: From the nineteen say forties, uh, because it wasn't King's vision to um, have a march on Washington. <laughs> uh, it, that that uh, idea came about in the forties under other leadership but we give and others. That's right. Mm -hmm. Yes, so we have seen not only the rise of Barack Obama, Stacey Abrams, and many other leaders that were able to benefit from the 1960 um, amendments uh, to the Constitution. Uh, I wanted you both, since you're historians, why do you think the Reconstruction Uh, laws? Was it just the way they were written? Why did they fail? And why did we have to revisit that again in the 60s? And and outside of Jim Crow, we know that those laws came about. But was it how they were written?
1: No, I I don't don't think think it was was how how they they were Go
0: ahead, ahead,
2: Cynthia. No, we have the same thought. I don't think
1: it was how they were written. I think that um, Southern whites just were insistent on returning to the practice of white supremacy that they had before Reconstruction. You know, what happened was that um, a deal was cut in Washington so that federal troops were all withdrawn from the South without the federal troops in the South to protect the rights of, of newly freed black men and women Southern whites returned to what they thought was their rightful place at the top of the heap. They believed that they had every right to oppress uh, and subjugate black people to get their labor for little or nothing, uh, to keep black people uneducated. And and Northern leaders found it um, convenient to turn a blind eye to that. And you're right about the 1940s. You know, uh, black servicemen came back from World War II. Black men had fought valiantly for a country where they were treated like second-class citizens. And they came back from that war, having fought for freedom in Europe, determined to fight for freedom here at home. And Thurgood Marshall defended a lot of those black servicemen who had been unfairly court martialed for crimes they didn't commit in the military. And that helped plant the seeds for the civil rights movement that blossomed in the 1960s. But unfortunately, it seems to me the United States has to learn the same lessons over and over and over about living up to our noble ideals about freedom and equality for everyone. Bry, you have some thoughts on that, I'm sure.
2: Well, I think that was a very good summary. It's, uh, it, you know, my thoughts are are very close to Cynthia's in in that regard, and that was one of the reasons. Let me just say, as an aside, that we wanted to do the book together because we're both. Native Southerners, both, in fact, Native Alabamians, uh, one of us white, the other African American, um, you know, we were we grew up on opposite sides of the racial divide in the South, uh, but have come to understand, you know, the country's journey in a very similar way. And so that alone, we thought, was a statement worth making in the book, that these two Southern authors um, from from different backgrounds originally have come to see things in a uh, um, you know very similar if not almost identical uh, way. And certainly the what Cynthia was just talking about uh, expresses my thoughts on on that history that she was sketching out. You know, really almost exactly.
0: I wanted to talk quickly about, um, and really can't talk about it quickly, but in summary, um, the late 1960s with Johnson, you've got the Vietnam War, and then Nixon comes into being president of the United States. And then we have not only the 1960s laws, we've got uh, public housing and subsidized housing and less jobs that are keeping blacks and poor in poverty. Then you fast forward to the late 70s with Jimmy Carter, um, a Democrat from Georgia, and he stays one term but has a turbulent time because of the um, inflation that um, was going on then. We got inflation now, and also the Iran uh, Contra that we bring in immigrants, people who are coming into this country. Then you've got Reagan, who basically is going back, maybe say, 30 years with the same mentality. In fact, he, he starts off some of his campaigning, was, I believe it was in Mississippi. Then you've got Bush. Then you've got Clinton. So you fast forward through the end of the 20th century. Then we are in a major recession, the bubble bursts. the dot-com thing. Nine years later, we have another recession. So where are we at now? A combination of a lot of things that we have gone through over the last fifty years plus <laughs> um it's it's been like a whirlwind when you read the history of all of this, but I mentioned public housing and I mentioned um, subsidized housing I mentioned the poor I mentioned inflation It's just about the same thing we're we're With Trump, we've got we're going backwards. Am I not right to actually glean some of that knowledge from your book? We're kind of going backwards with this. Brian, you
1: want to go first?
2: Yeah, well, it it sure, um, it sure seems like we uh we started going uh backward, you know. Some of us, uh, certainly, I feel I felt this way when um even though there were ebbs and flows of the progress that I hoped we were making in the country. um, I really thought that it was a watershed moment when we elected our first African-American president. Um, And I thought we maybe had reached a plateau from which we just would not go backwards on some of these, uh, uh, on some of these issues, particularly, uh, you know, the kind of racial and moral issues that, uh, that have been central to so much of our history. But then we saw a backlash against President Obama that was just uglier than I had imagined was was possible or certainly was likely. Um, it wasn 't that people disagreed with his policies it 's that they thought he wasn't that there was the birther controversy and and the the allegation absurd allegation that he wasn't born in this country that he was a Muslim, whatever other nutty stuff you heard back then and then one of the great purveyors of all of that becomes elected president in uh twenty sixteen um and, and his first announcement of his run for the presidency um, you know came when he, at, at Trump Tower when he said he was going to run, and he smeared the reputation of uh, Mexican and uh, Central American immigrants to this country, calling them rapists and all of that. So there were racial overtones, racist overtones from the very beginning. So all of that was disheartening. And then when you add into it the ebbs and flows of the economics um, and a continuing income gap that remains constant through all of that, uh, where the rich get richer and and everybody else does not, um, then, you know, it, it makes for a turbulent, uncertain time for the country as a whole. Cynthia, you want to Um, clean that up a little?
1: (laughs) No, what you said was just fine. I'd just like to add in particular that part of what uh, Trump played on was fear that there might be subsidized housing in the suburbs. That was Mm -hmm. particularly part of his second campaign. He kept talking about, um, I'm protecting the suburbs And there were two things about that that I found fascinating. First of all, he wasn't conversant with how much the country had already changed. Uh, Suburbs around many cities are already pretty diverse. But it's also true that Trump's family um, had a history of racist practices in their own um, uh, uh, real estate empire in New York and so while it became very easy uh for trump i think he by the way uh fry mentioned birtherism that's how trump introduced himself on the political stage he was the birther in chief and so there was much about trump uh that was recycling george wallace for um the 21st century Uh, he found it easy to play on white people's fears and resentments, especially those whites who seem resentful that the nation had finally elected a black president. And people haven't
0: gotten over that. And we have a more diverse group of people in this country now who have been in the streets for the past few years. Um, whether it's because of George Floyd or any of the other slew of injustices that have happened at the hands of law enforcement. Before we end, I wanted to talk uh, to you both. I believe the church has a major role in all of this because they are the ones that have painted anybody who's not of majority as less than, and they've used biblical scripture to do so. Even in supporting whatever candidate, whether it be Trump or any of the other ones, they are more holier than thou or they are whatever they are supposed to be. Where do you see now going forward? We're in the middle of a pandemic. Many ministers, unfortunately, have lost their lives believing that uh, we're not in a pandemic. We, you know, <laughs> should throw caution to the wind. Mm-hmm. But even politically, where do you see us going? Because we are, of course, repeating, three-peating, four-peating. We are going backwards. And even with the vote and people getting out and being registered to vote, it seems like the money is more important than the vote. Think the rules have, have changed.
1: Um, well, we have a, an, one essay in the book devoted to the influence of the right-wing Christian church in mm-hmm. um, taking American politics, we believe, in the wrong direction. And we go back to quote Dr. Martin Luther King, who called out conservative white church leaders in his letter from Birmingham jail. Um, You know, if you read the New Testament, it's all about um, everybody being one in Christ. It's all about inclusion. Uh, But the conservative white Christian church seems to have interpreted that very differently. Um, And I think that hit it's zenith when they rallied around Donald Trump, who was a thrice-married adulterer who um, bragged about groping women. So um, I I do believe that there are conservative white Christians, though, who saw what so many of their church leaders were doing and got disgusted with it and believed that uh, those church folk were leading in the wrong direction, and many of them left. The conservative white Christian church, Uh, popularly known as the Evangelical Church, has lost members over the last decade. And I believe that's the reason why, uh, that many of their members did not see actual Christian teachings in what their practices were. Uh, The Christian church ought to be inclusive. It ought to be loving and embrace everyone. Um, And as Dr. King said in his letter from Birmingham jail, Christian ministers should have been the people standing up for desegregation. They ought to be the people now standing up to say, we're not going to jerk babies from their mother's arms at the border. We need to be welcoming more immigrants. Uh, But we have not seen a lot of that from the conservative white Christian church.
2: Mr. But that's not. But that's not the only part of the Christian Church in the country either. And and that's you know I agree with every word Cynthia just said. Fortunately, we also have uh, among other examples uh, the Black Church, uh, the Church of of Martin Luther King. Um, literally um, the. the uh, minister at the church that Dr. King once pastored uh, in Atlanta, Georgia, is now the the uh, first black senator from the state of Georgia, uh, Reverend Raphael Warnock. And in his maiden speech before the U.S. Senate, he talked about how, in his view, democracy um, is, in a way, uh, the embodiment of the will of God or the love of God in the sense that it affirms the worth of every human being uh, in our country. It's sort of the civic expression uh, that we are all children of God and therefore brothers and sisters of each other. Warnock's speech was a, uh, a, a lovely blend, I thought, of the sort of ethics and higher calling of his faith with the political realities of his time. He saw some hope, the fact that he now holds a seat once held by an arch-segregationist, Herman Talmadge, in the U.S. Senate. Uh, He said, that's why I love America. But he also pointed out that as soon as he won that seat, uh, white people in high places in the state of Georgia began trying to change the rules and began to push through Legislation about voter suppression and all of those things. So, again, you know, there's hope, and there's, uh, but there's also, as we say in the title of the book, democracy hanging in the balance.
0: Yes, the Southernization of America, a story of democracy in the balance. I give you both uh, the final word.
2: We hope that uh, that that some of the sort of uh, intellectual, ethical, spiritual, political, uh, that the best of the better angels of of our nature in the southern part of the country uh, continue to trickle out and that our lesser angels, uh, you know, begin to recede there. And we just don't know which way it'll go.
1: We don't, but we know that um, the fate of the country is in the hands of ordinary American citizens. So we hope that your listeners will do what the late, great John Lewis urged us all to do, and that is get in good trouble.
0: Amen. Thanks so much for being with me, and I know my audience loves this topic so much. Uh, we hope to have you back. with you
1: either do another book or you have something new for us thank you you very much thank you